Merkel Media. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. Well, the giant moves, he's got a spear in one hand and he's running really fast and spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody else, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge and I blow his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg. And I look over and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reached my hand into this bush and I touch air. Couldn't breathe and I couldn't move because I know I'm seeing a monster. Yep. yep. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I'm your host, Tony Merkel. Thanks for being here. If you have a crazy, wild experience you want to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is contact at theconfessionalspodcast.com. That's contact at theconfessionalspodcast.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the contact section and you can reach me that way as well. Either way it works for me, just get a hold of me. If you want more shows on a weekly basis, go to theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the join button, become a member. You're going to get access to the Thursday shows, which are members exclusive, ad-free listening, and also overtime episodes when they're available, all exclusively available on the website and the newly minted app. So if you want to go ahead and check it out, go ahead, check it out. We have the app. All you got to do is download it off the Apple App Store and off Google Play. It doesn't matter to me. It all matters on what kind of phone you have. So hopefully you guys are enjoying it that are members. It is a members exclusive app, but if you're not a member... You can't download, well, you can download the app. You just can't log in. So uh, there's that. Also, friends, I just want to let you know, empshield.com. We are a partner affiliate with them. You can put these devices on your vehicle. And if there is a solar flare, a lightning strike on the vehicle, or even an EMP attack, that vehicle will still be able to turn on. And that is a great thing if you're away from your family so you can get to your family. empshield.com. If you want these devices put on your car, all you got to do is use coupon code TONY. It will knock off $50 off every device you order off that website. Go ahead and check it out if you want, empshield.com. Now, today we have Dr. Angle. We brought her back on today because the first time we talked to her, we talked all about MK Ultra. But after she was an adult and a doctor, she actually went to Russia to help rebuild the medical institution in Russia after the USSR failed. Well, she comes on to talk about how she uncovered and found a large human trafficking ring that was multiple nations, including the United States. And she comes on to talk about her journey with that and her book called Angels Over Moscow. You can go ahead and check it out. It's in the description of this episode and you can purchase it off Amazon. It's a fantastic book. It details her story. She comes on to talk about these things today. Also how this 
experience with the human trafficking ties directly into MK Ultra programming, obviously, and she went through that as well. So she was uniquely qualified to connect some dots there. And we also go down some other routes as well, such as the normalization of pedophilia. She broke some news to me on the show. I left my jaw on the desk. And it's because I have been speaking out about the normalization of pedophilia before I even had a podcast. I talked about this stuff with people. They said I was crazy. And here we are. And it's actually happening. And she said some things to me that kind of triggered me. It went on a little bit of a rant. But I think if we're talking about human trafficking on the show, you can kind of expect I'm going to rant at some point because it just ticks me off. Uh, We also talk about Starforge. She's looking into Starforge, brought that up. And I was like, I think I recognize this. And then I remember talking about it on a previous episode, but we talk a little bit about star forts and I'm going to bring on some people in the future talking more about these star forts situation, but it was a good overall conversation. I have with Dr. Angle. We talked about a lot of different things, starting out with her human trafficking uncovering in Russia. So let's get to Dr. Angle right now. Okay, today we have returning guest, Dr. Juliet Angle. How are you, ma'am? I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we were just chatting a little bit about your last appearance and stuff, and it sounds like people have been uh, reaching out to you and you've been getting a good uh, good response on that last interview. Yeah, lots of you've got great people in your chat room and uh, lots of good questions and some good discussions going, and there'll be some more interviews with some of your your viewers. So I think you've got a great crowd there. Awesome. Yeah. I I was hoping you'd get a good response from people. Uh, I thought it was a great interview. And uh, it, before what we're going to get into today is kind of almost like a, a totally different topic in a sense, uh, but it's like a life shift for you. Uh, but before we get into that, just so that people maybe can have a refresher on you know who you are, in case they didn't hear the first one, they can go back and listen to it. I believe it was episode 530 is the episode we put you out on. And uh, if you could just let people know what we talked about in that first interview as far as MKUltra goes in your life. Well, I was put into MKUltra. I was basically sold into it by my father. And uh, he made sure I watched myself getting paid for um, when I was six years old. And I come from Although I didn't know it at the time, I come from a long line of of uh, intelligence operatives. All my uncles and grandfather were in the OSS. <clears throat> my uncle is one of the original founders of the NSA, and um, I was sold into there uh, basically at the age of six, and then put into a program called uh, Monarch, which was the secret butterfly program, and eventually into a program called Sex Magic because I was pretty, I was smart, I was, I was, um, <laughs> I guess, destined to be a whore for the CIA, I guess, and, and uh, I continued in that program, and um, I encourage you to listen to the episode, because it's a very good review of, of what went on in there, the kind of satanic ritual abuse that they subject children to, uh, the history of MK Ultra, as much as I know about it, is in there, because it was exposed in 1976 when uh, uh, Senator Church held hearings in Congress and exposed it, uh, but then it was quickly buried, and a lot of people that testified in that in that hearing later disappeared or, or disappeared from sight. Um, 
so it's continued on. And, and at that time, there were thousands of Americans who had been inducted into the program, meaning forced, uh, including at least hundreds of children, including myself. But um, I was aware of the hearings. But at that time, I was in my 30s and had completely forgotten um, ever having been in the program. In fact, after I escaped from MKUltra at the age of 17, I didn't remember anything about my childhood. I went off to college. I started a new life and could remember nothing. And uh, so go go listen to that. It was a really good interview. Yeah. I think a very, very good. Tony asked great questions and, and we really got into it. But um, I was in my 30s. I was going to, beginning into psychoanalysis so I could start to recover some memories from the child, my childhood. But I really didn't have anything because everything that would come up was so insanely violent and, and terrible. But I was a successful physician. I was practicing in Bellevue, Washington. I was part of the Seattle high-tech startup crowd with with Bill Gates and and uh, the founders of Adobe and the, and uh, uh, it was it was the age of the entrepreneur in Seattle. So uh, before it all went dark, when it was kind of fun, and uh, I was invited, I was at the hospital doing my radiology practice and received an invitation to go to the former Soviet Union. It was the Soviet Union at that time, so this was 1990, and uh, be the first doctor into their birthing houses and look at their system of childbirth and maternity care because they had um, probably the highest, one of the highest uh, rates of maternal and infant mortality in, in any industrialized nation. So they started to invite, they invited me. Later, I learned why they picked me, but in the beginning, it just seemed like a, a random incident out of the blue. So I went to Russia. We also covered that in the in the previous interview, so I won't go in depth. But um, I began working in the birth houses and orphanages in Russia and discovering that children were disappearing. And um, so I wanted to know what was happening. And it, it took quite a lot, including working with investigative reporters in Russia and uh, the head of a magazine called Women's Life in Russia to start digging out what was happening to these children. And uh, they were going into orphanages and were disappearing. About uh, 800,000 of them were living at that time in a system of orphanages that were all up and down the, the rivers of Russia, because that's how you got that's where the towns were, the little towns. So it wasn't like uh, they were kept in Moscow. They were exported to other places. And uh, they would, as as time went by in the orphanages, they would uh, be taken away or disappeared. Or, or um, by the time they graduated, they were picked up outside the orphanages and taken to other countries. So it was it was right there in my face that this was trafficking of children, that children were being kidnapped. And this is really what triggered my own um, deep dive into my own past, because I knew there was something there, and um, but I couldn't remember it. So I followed these kids. I, I um, had a case or an incident where I brought, I was working with a group, founded a group that supplied uh, orphanages during, during uh difficult times in 1998 during the financial crisis, Russia was falling apart. And the first thing that budget item that got cut, just like it's happening here, were 
children's services. So uh, the orphanages were in dire straits. So I was delivering coats in the middle of winter and um, discovered that all the coats I'd bought brought for teenage girls, and these are girls that I'd just seen the summer before, um, they all had the names and they had little gifts in the pockets. So people in Seattle were just wonderful about contributing and helping, and they're just lovely people. And uh, But the girls were gone. And when I tried to find out why all the teenage girls were gone, I got the story from the kids that a bus came and took them to Finland. And that they thought this was a really wonderful thing. These kids were going off to a better life and, and uh, they couldn't wait themselves to get on the bus when they got old enough. And it just, it was just the driver from my own past. I couldn't leave it at that. So I followed the kids up to Murmansk, uh, up to the Kola Peninsula, where there were women's groups who were already addressing the problem of international child trafficking. And I met with them and they told me that the kids were on buses. The buses were used as mobile brothels. The brothels were, um, as they drove through Finland and Sweden and Norway, which is a totally lawless zone. I mean, you don't think of Sweden as the Wild West, but they have a whole central portion, which is so lawless that law enforcement doesn't even go there. So it's like this central band where, where smuggling, human smuggling, cigarette smuggling, drug smuggling, it all goes right through the middle of Scandinavian countries and ends up in uh, Norway, at least in this case, ended up in Norway. So um, I followed them all the way up to Murmansk, and there's a border crossing there that goes to Kirkenes, Norway. And I got on the bus in, um, there's a, twice a week, there's a bus from Murmansk, which is the, the northernmost seaport of Russia, into um, Kirkenes, Norway. And I got on that bus and I was on the bus with, <laughs> with probably 12 Sami people who, who came up to hear on me <laughs> and uh, were smuggling cigarettes. So it was, it was an interesting group. They, they, because they're indigenous people, they, they can travel freely from Norway, Finland, Sweden, Lapland, what, what was considered Lapland. Uh, it's, they have a nation up there and they, they're free to smuggling as their business or at least this group. Anyways, as a side, but um, uh, I went to Kirkenes. I found that I went to the police, walked in, told them the problem, and um, they showed me a drawer full of pictures. Uh, these are Polaroid photographs of children. And they said, yes, Russian children are showing up here all the time. So they showed me this drawer of pictures, but they were all the faces of dead children. So um, they said, see if you can find your kids in here. And I was so rattled and shocked, and and uh, it sort of sent me on a flashback. It was it was the dead faces, and and um, I couldn't do it, so I left, got myself together, came back the next day, and then they denied that the photographs existed, and but they did tell me that uh, they did find the bodies of children, and they buried them all in a mass grave that was called Natasha. So they called them all Natasha. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know what their names were. If they were matched to any search by Interpol or, or anything, they would respond, but no one ever did. So they, they weren't even sure what nationality these children were. And they said if they ever found one alive, of course they helped. But he said generally they find them dead. 
and and that just that set me on a on a personal spiral and a um, a total drive because these kids were helpless. They were never represented, never protected, never sheltered, not in their own society. Although the you know people in the orphanage tended that I knew tended to be very kind people, but they had no no um, destiny, no no attachment. Uh, and at that time, it was still very early, so there weren't church schools, and there wasn't a response from the Orthodox Church yet. So these kids were just left to the mercies of the state. The state ignored them, neglected them, and sort of threw them out. And the human traffickers took them, abused them, sold them, and then discarded them. And I just, that was too much for me. So um, I went back to Seattle, and it was a it was an emotional roller coaster. When you say it's the two parts of my life are separate, they aren't really. Because if I hadn't had this in my own background, the fact that I'd been trafficked, the fact that I had been sold, the fact that I had been sexually and ritually abused and been um, about to be tossed out at the age of seventeen, if I hadn't escaped and gotten myself off to university with a lot of, I had help. Um, I, I would have been in the same situation. So here I was. I was not helpless. I'm an MD. I had a practice. I had money. I had, I had freedom, and um, I was going to help. And about this time, the U.S. had just started the trafficking in persons program. So they just had opened the State Department had opened an office called the Tip Office, which is the the um, uh, office to monitor and I oh, forget it's got this long name, but basically yeah. it's the uh, to monitor and prevent human trafficking. And uh, so that's what I thought it was, and that's what the people that work there thought it was. And and uh, so I got one of the very first grants, which was three hundred thousand dollars, to go create uh, a uh, civic response in Russia to human trafficking. So to start informing people. Uh, forming, reforming, uh, informing institutions, developing programs for mass media. Um, uh, and I did all that. We did, as soon as I had a group together of really uh, incredible, devoted Russian patriots, um, they carried out the first civic actions. In, the first civic actions, not just the first civic actions on trafficking, but the first time citizens have sponsored parades on a social issue that wasn't state-sponsored. So um, we, we kicked off information campaigns in 21 cities all around Russia, coordinated it, had a huge response, began gathering information on how enormous the problem was. We had a coast-to-coast -coast chat room in Russia, so we did 11 time zones over the course of 11 hours. One of the most exhausting things I've ever done because it was in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> On top of everything else. And, and um, gathered enough information. Um, we had a group in Seattle called the Forum Foundation, and they had developed this complex questionnaire, opinionaire, to send out to all the groups who were gathering to participate in this chat room. We had no idea what kind of response we'd get back or how big it would be. We got thousands of people filling out 
these complex questionnaires. And what emerged was a pattern of human trafficking, which was uh, unbelievable. It spread all the way from Mongolia, they participated, um, to Kaliningrad. And, and we started getting Eastern Europe responding. And, and uh, they had copied the questionnaire and sent it around. And they had to get it back to us. So it took a couple of months to get all the questionnaires back in trains, watermelon trucks. Um, <laughs> it came in a, amazing ways. And they sent back, we had sent out number two pencils because they didn't have pencils to fill it in. They sent back every single pencil. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, they could have kept the pencils, but <laughs> wow. we kept getting we kept getting these mountains of dirty, grimy questionnaires and the pencils. <laughs> so we had over a million pieces of data from this incredibly complex questionnaire, and we're able to map out the progress of human trafficking across uh Eastern Russia into Central Asia, parts of China, and then all the way through the Middle East, uh, Iran, people from Iran participated. And, and, uh, and it was actually enough for the groups to take this information to the Russian Duma, which is their Congress, and demand that there be anti-trafficking legislation. And uh, they wrote it, they, they developed it, and eventually the, the Duma did pass it, and they did pass quite, quite good legislation. Um, but strangely, the American embassy opposed it. So uh, what also came out of this, of this mountain of data that we collected was the fact that there were two major destination countries for human trafficking from Russia, and that and that includes the trafficking coming through Russia. So all the Central Asian republics, a lot of it came through Russia and then went out overseas. And the two main countries were Germany and the United States. And uh, from that data, we could tell that the main points of trafficking were going to New York. They were going to this place called Brighton Beach, where they were going to work, and to Virginia Beach in Virginia. And uh, so I thought, this is really something, you know, we had the data on the groups that were in the areas where this trafficking has come from. So we could get the information on even like what, what flights these girls were being booked on because they'd be provided with tickets and, and uh, they'd have to have a new passport and documents and all this. So the, the families knew where their, where their daughters, we were looking primarily at, at young women at that time, where the daughters were going, the orphans we couldn't track. That that had to come later. But uh, just ordinary people were being trafficked, being offered jobs, and um, uh, and not just it would be nanny jobs, nursing jobs, and accounting jobs. There was a huge number of accountants that were trafficked, and and because it, it's it was a very popular um, uh, education program for young women so they would recruit from accounting schools and then they then they would disappear and the only way to follow them would be to follow them to the United States so and by that time I'd had like several years of grants and we built the Angel Coalition which is a coalition of, of Russian and uh, former Soviet country organizations who were doing an incredible job not just with 
preventing trafficking in their areas, working with their local governments, um, in many cases, working with mafia groups who were opposed to human trafficking. And that's a whole story unto itself. I believe it. Um, and uh, so I gathered up all this information, took a group of them, went to Washington, D.C., and presented this to the State Department, to Congress, to um, the TIP office, to uh, international law enforcement. Nobody wanted to hear it. In fact, the State Department had this technique where you can lay out your data, your everything, make your presentation. They don't hear it. They look away. They won't look at things. They won't touch. They don't touch anything. So um, I would even like wave it, <laughs> wave it in their face. You know, the the kind of posters that were used, and and um, nothing, nothing at all. No response from law enforcement. Never any follow up. We'd send them through INL, which is International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, which is. The, our, um, that's how the FBI works in embassies. They're called INL, and that covers all the, the law enforcement agencies. So you never know who you're actually talking to. But um, no response. I even had their personal numbers in the United States because I knew several of them. I'd call them and say, there's, there's somebody coming. I'd never hear back. So it was a really bizarre response. And then the, the tip office every year, puts out a, a report called the TIP report. And of course, the number one country for, for prevention and there's no trafficking here and we've got the best system, that's the United States. It's, it's set forward as the paragon of, of uh, human trafficking. And there we were saying, wait a minute, <laughs> it's not as good as you think. And, and uh also, in my own past, which came to me later, I know I sound like a crazy person because my life was so not at apart all. and I was programmed, programmed to forget. But I'd lived on the Mexican border and I'd seen the human trafficking. I'd actually been used as a drug mule on the Mexican border when I was a kid. I didn't remember any of this, but it started coming back to me that, that uh, children were being brought over the Mexican border and then used um, for prostitution, rituals, all kinds of awful things, including snuff films that I was forced to participate in as a child. So it was, it was, I was sort of in a unique position to begin putting this together that uh, there was maybe the possibility of state-sponsored human trafficking and child trafficking going on in my own country. And, um, now I'm absolutely positive that there is. And but it did it did at the time, this would be in the mid 2000s that uh, we got full on attacked by the American embassy in Moscow. And um, uh, that, and not just us, but other programs around the country that were really doing good counter trafficking work. It's like everybody was, was uh, we were a little tiny grantee and we were we were audited we were um they would send derogatory letters they would send uh, missions they, they, i was speaking at russian parliament and the and the about human trafficking not about the united states just about the the conditions of children and the angel coalition 
and the head of INL was sitting in the front row. This is from the U.S. Embassy. They were represented there. And he very loudly says to the person next to him, don't worry, the Angel Coalition will be gone in a month or two. And, and so I had Russian, the Russian Duma, everybody could hear this. They were coming up to me afterwards and apologizing to me for the behavior of my own country. And, and what do you do? I mean, I'm an American. <laughs> you know, I, I was just, they, they constantly provided me with help. And, and, um, and the embassy, but that changed. William Burns then became the, the ambassador. He's now the director of the CIA. He became the ambassador of Russia. And he was, he was, the whole attitude of the embassy changed. And I was there many times and he seemed extremely helpful. And he was also a Russian speaker and very knowledgeable. But now he's head of the CIA. I, I don't know what any of that means, but I, I was impressed with him. Um, and then eventually we lost our funding and we were placed under the aegis of the International Organization of Migration, which is another whole topic for you. You, you wonder who's funding all these migrants that are about to invade the United States, who's lined up, who's paying for all that. Uh, it's the UN agency, the International Organization of Migration. So we're paying for our own invasion, which is about to happen. Um, and they, it was my first experience of being involved with money laundering because it's clearly what they do through like the, the IOM, the International Organization of Migration. We were given a grant, our organization, and from the tip office of the State Department, who then bragged about how big it was, but we were never told how much we got. So, um, but we were put under all these restrictions under this umbrella organization of IOM. And we would get reports on our 15 employees. We had one employee. <laughs> we had maybe one and a half because they love paying for half a person, which, you know, makes it impossible for you to operate. And uh, they would restrict everything we did. And eventually they took every cent we had, but it was still credited to us. So when they were discredited in any way, we were discredited. It just, it just, it's so obvious, and we're not the only ones it's happened to. Um, so it's how they basically killed small NGOs, and how they basically, um, uh, you know, destroyed any civic civic action. Because groups like us would go in, we would find the the people who wanted to do something positive for their country and their people. They would become more public and more visible, and then they organizations like IOM would just shut them down. And um, that's where we are today. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they've been using good intention people in really terrible ways. And uh, the situation with human trafficking has gotten much, much worse. IOM is bringing God knows who to the southern border of the United States and to England. I mean, there's, I just saw a picture this morning of this cargo ship that's going to bring 500 young men, immigrants, to uh, the coast of England. And, of course, IOM is sponsoring that. So who are they? So here comes your invading army. And uh, this is where we're at. It's, it's, uh, and the UN has just um, 
made a statement that pedophilia should be legalized and that children should be allowed to have adult sexual partners and there's nothing wrong with it. We can't accept that. That cannot happen. When, when did the UN make that announcement? Yesterday. Wow. Yes, the head of the UN. Who is it? Uh, Guterres? Yes, he just announced it. Wow. I just saw it come through my feed this morning. That uh, children should be allowed to choose adult. This is the thing. Adult sexual partners. So this is all a continuum that started... I think long before I was in an MK Ultra program, but certainly, you know, I've had this continuous thread in my life, and it's why I'm so adamant about uh, protecting children and stopping this pedophilia. It's it's the end of us. You know, um, so I, I, we're, I, I want I want you to continue the direction you're going here uh, with t- telling your story, but I I, I want to comment on on this news that you're breaking here on the show to me because I, I I did not know this. And I this is something that I, I I've been very uh passionate about my entire life, uh adult life I should say, well before I was a podcaster. Uh and this was uh I would say probably 2014, 2015, maybe even earlier than that. It definitely was actually it's probably 2012, 2013. I was saying on my personal Facebook page, just to the people who actually that I actually knew at the time, because I was nobody then, uh, I I would say that they're the way society's going is they're gearing up to legalize pedophilia. And everybody told me I was freaking crazy. They told me I was nuts. And here we are in 2023, let's just say 10 years later. And when you get parents uh, at, to the point where they're allowing their children to make adult decisions with their sexuality, uh, the idea of allowing children to make adult decisions as to who they want to have sexual intercourse with and encounters with is not a far-fetched stretch. That's the next step in this. Yep. And so it, 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 this, is, this is what I predicted 10 years ago. And here we are, and I, I didn't know that. And that's why it's, it, I'm taking this an aside here because it, it's, it, it's sick, it's setting me off and this is the kind of stuff that uh, you just got to pick a, 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 what side you're going to be on here. There is no middle ground. There is no fence sitting on this. Either you're for or against child abuse. And that's what this is. It's legalized child abuse. And if the UN is coming out and saying that stuff, guarantee you all the nations within the UN will start coming out and pushing these things as well. It's just a, it's just a domino effect. And so I, it, it just... My bl- my blood started boiling when you said that, and so I, I apologize. Uh, I mean, we're sitting down here to talk about human trafficking, so at some point, I'm sure the audience understood that I was going to be due for some kind of a rant. Well, that was the the, the mini one that that kind of set me off because it, it, it's so current. They, they, my, one of my questions to you was going to be, and it still is, but like at the time frame, and and we're going to do the whole timeline thing here down as we talk, but. Uh, the the fact that we have global leadership encouraging this kind of behavior is it's just the state of where we're at today and the and it, it needs to be stopped at all costs needs to be stopped and so that's just my psa of the day so i'll, I'll i know you're looking for the article but i'll hand it over to you to say whatever you'd like to say yeah you I, the article is uh, there've been a number they've been as they do they've been leading up to this um <clears throat> But I, I just heard the head of the UN, whose name I'm blanking on, 
and uh, come out and say that uh, sex sex with minors is consensual. And back in uh, April was the International Commission on Jurists from the Office of United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights in recommending the March 8th principles for a human rights-based approach to criminal law, prescribing conduct associated with sex, reproduction, drug use, homelessness. It states that children have both the capacity and the legal right to make sexual decisions. And then he built on that. So, I mean, if you follow this along, um, according to the United Nations, children may consent to sex with adults. This has been their plan all along. The report does not offer a suggested age of sexual consent. And, and in the statement this morning, he said there isn't one. You know, children of all age can consent to, to um, sex. This, is, this has been in the planning. And I, and I can tell from the more I remember about my own MKUltra training is that their um, children are, are used for sex. And, and because of their purity. So they're used for sex. They're, they are sacrificed because of their purity. Their body parts are, are utilized in rituals. Um, and and uh, that this is, uh, this is happening. And, and at the same time that the United Nations has got its troops together to invade Europe, invade England, um, invade us from the southern border. You know, who are these people? Why is, why is the UN sponsoring migrant camps filled with thousands of young men sitting on the Mexican border ready to invade us? Why do all the U.S. agencies have ammo, guns? Um, why does the IRS have over a million rounds of ammo? It's not for the IRS. It's for the invaders coming over the border. So um, it's pretty clear to me that this is, this is what's happening. Yeah. So uh, with, with what you just said, I just want to kind of uh, maybe piggyback, but just point to obvious things that are going through people's heads right now because uh, people listening, I'm sure there's people listening that be like, well, that's conjecture. That's conjecture. You, you're, you're just assuming that that's what that's for. And then the guns are for that and stuff. I, I, just, I need to say no more than Fast and Furious. That was a real operation. I know people who were involved with Fast and Furious. I've talked to them, obviously not on air, but I've talked, like I know people who've been involved in handing over guns, our guns to terrorists. Like th this is, this is real that, that this, this kind of stuff happening. So uh, say, say you want to say it's conjecture or not, it, it's whatever, that's, uh, that's your prerogative. But the fact is just all you have to do is look at history. We have been known to do these kind of things. So it's not it's not out of, out of the question. Yeah, it's it's my conjecture that that I mean I'm watching um, all these agencies that have no right to have weapons at all. Like the Park Service doesn't need massive uh, like grenade launchers and this kind of thing. They don't need it. And and um, why is that happening? And then you have to put that together. Why it's why are all these um, military age men gathering on our border and we're ignoring it. I, I mean, it's, it's, um, I think we're in serious trouble and that, that, uh, I'm willing to come out and talk about it because I think there's very little time left. Yeah. And, um, 
what to do about it is is uh, wake up, <laughs> wake up, be aware of it, and don't give up your guns. I think uh, first of all, we're going in a different direction than I thought, but we, and we'll steer it back. But but I, I will say, <laughs> okay, we can. I, I'll, I'll say this: we may not know what the exact answer is for all this stuff, but we have to trust and believe. And I, this is what I believe: I think the the answer will be apparent and show itself to you at the proper time. And I'm just gonna leave it at that. Uh, I I gotta trust that we have brains, and when the time comes for the appropriate answer and response to things, we'll know. We'll know. I think it's more it's more than brains. I think brains get us into trouble mm. a lot of the time. It's our souls. It's it's uh, people have to have faith in their, in their souls. So it's awakening of, of souls. And I think the people that are running around promoting all these things are people that have lost their souls. They've given them up voluntarily. They've been, you know, thousands and thousands of kids went through MK Ultra programs and that their goal was to take your soul. And once they've got your soul, then you become um, their tool and their tool you get all the rewards, you wear the gold, you get the big cars, you get all the money. And, uh, but you are their tool and you don't have a moral compass anymore. So all the good people in the world that have kept their souls, it's your soul that's going to tell you what to do and, and respond. So you have to, it's every person's responsibility to work on their connection with the divine and um, awaken their own soul and listen. But it, uh, Jesus said, "Be, be still and listen." And maybe that wasn't Jesus. I'm sorry. I grew up in the Church of Satan. Um, <laughs> excuses, excuses. She has. <laughs> yeah, excuses, excuses. No, it, it really. I, I have a photographic memory, and I cannot get the Bible. It drives me nuts. I. I've listened to Psalms, the entire thing, all four hours, over and over, at least a hundred times, and I still can't quote Psalms. Anything else, I could probably, you know, re recite it like a book. It's, so there's there's a block that was put in very very early, so, but I can listen. I can't read it. I can listen. So sorry about my quotes. No, it's fine. <laughs> but be still and listen. Maybe. Uh, Maybe that's Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. Be still and listen. Time for a sponsor break with AI Tony. Are you tired of the same old routine? Cooking dinner feels like a chore, and you find yourself ordering takeout more often than you'd like. Well, my friends, it's time to shake things up with HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that brings excitement and convenience straight to your doorstep. Picture this. Fresh, pre-portioned ingredients delivered right to you, along with chef-curated recipes that will awaken your inner culinary superstar. With HelloFresh, you'll say goodbye to those dreaded trips to the grocery store. No more wandering aimlessly down the aisles, wondering what to make for dinner. HelloFresh has got you covered, providing a wide variety of delicious meals to suit your taste buds and dietary preferences. Whether you're a busy professional, a couple seeking culinary adventures, or a family searching for stress-free dinners, 
HelloFresh has something for everyone. Their easy-to-follow recipes take the guesswork out of cooking, making it a breeze to whip up impressive restaurant-quality meals in no time. My family and I have been using HelloFresh for longer than I can remember, and it has been nothing but a time saver and a flavorful adventure for our taste buds. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Confessional16 and use code Confessional16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Confessional16 and use code Confessional16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Say hello to fresh, exciting meals and goodbye to the hassle of meal planning. I would say I was not raised in the Church of Satan and I still have a hard time memorizing scripture. So it is what it is. Uh how many, let me ask you this, it, and this might be a good way to steer things in, in a new direction in a sense, but uh, how many politicians do you estimate, I'm sure you've thought of it, but how many politicians in just America do you think went through MK Ultra programming? Is it a lot or little? I think you can pick them out. Yeah, a lot of them. I would say anyone that's supporting um, the current policies uh, anyone that's taking this uh, an anti-human stance, I mean, what kind of human being is going to take an anti-human stance? Yeah, a seriously damaged one. You know, it's it's, uh, it's like they they've lost contact with the with the reality that we have to survive as a society and a species. And if you are against that, and you think you're you are being rewarded in some way in some wonderful way, then you've lost your soul. You've lost your moral compass. You've lost your way. Everybody skips the first four chapters of Revelation and goes into the crazy part. But if you read the first four chapters, it's the predictions. It's Jesus's predictions of what will happen to the seven churches of Asia if they don't correct their, their ways. And, um, and within these, this was these were the glowing jewels. These were the New York City at its best of the world at that time, and most beautiful, the wealthiest, the the art, the culture, the music. It was all the top of the world. And within a few hundred years, they were nothing. They were levered. They were they were dust, and uh, they still are dust and have no influence in the world. And uh, if you read the first four chapters, it's predicted that if, if they don't change the way they do things, and one of the things that uh, John wrote about in Revelation uh, and condemned the most was tolerance of evil. You know, if, if you are willing to tolerate evil for the sake of art or music or culture, which in the Satanic Bible, those are the seven mountains of, of culture, mm. um, those, those are where the human being is the most corruptible, and um, that's where, where our institutions exist. And uh, if, if you tolerate evil, those institutions will fall, and you'll be nothing. You'll be dust. And uh, that's what happened, and that's what we're doing. I mean, you, you read them. He, he uh, condemns Pergamon for following the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans did the greenery at Christmas because Christmas is not the birth of Christ. Christmas is the birth of Nimrod, who is a demon. And and um, the Saturnalia is a celebration of his birth, and that's December 25th. 
And they do that with greenery and scent and child sacrifice and child abuse and uh, ritual abuse, which I, I wrote about that in, in my book, Sparky, Surviving Sex Magic. Um, so, that, so that's 2,000 years ago. <laughs> We're making the same mistakes now, but you're never going to get people to change Christmas. And it... And, and this year I was watch observing, you know, um, uh, through the holiday season, there was barely any mention of the birth of Christ. It was all Santa Claus and presents and lights and, and greenery and feasting and pigging out and drinking too much, <laughs> you know. So they're celebrating the Saturnalia. And then, of course, there's a massive child sacrifice on December 25th. So... Um, What's what's the child sacrifice on December twenty fifth? Well, that's the Saturnalia. Saturnalia was the high holiday of the gotcha. Nicolaitans and the high holiday of of the celebrating the birth of Nimrod. And um, I thought you were referring to something that happened this past uh, December twenty fifth. Like I was. Well, it happens. It happens every year. It happened. Um, I was as a child. I was taken off to a Saturnalia every Christmas. And uh, it happens at Disneyland, or it did at the at the time that uh, I was a child. That was Disneyland in California. It opened in 56, um, 55, 56. But I, I was going there. They were taking me there um, and having Saturnalias there. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm, just one, I'm just one little person in all this. But um, I, it's my feeling that we're we're right on the edge, and um, so speaking out is is what I can do. Is what I can I can share my experiences. I can share my mm. opinions. I can share what I see. You know, it, it's uh, talking about scripture. I don't remember it, but it's it's the scripture where it's, uh, it talks about. What was a benefit you to gain the whole world but lose your soul, right? So it, it's 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 yes. really uh, a very similar situation where it, it sounds like you're kind of sitting in a sim similar spot as me, where it's like I could sit here and uh, worry about you know like whatever. Twenty thirty minutes ago, I went on my little rant there. Uh, I could sit here and worry about the the probably few people that I offended with that, or. I could take a stance because there's, I believe, a few amount of people being louder than everybody else. I think most sane people would agree with me on what I had to say. But at the end of the day, I literally would rather lose everything than to lose my consciousness on some of these matters. And that's why I, I always tease my wife. I say, one day I might do or say something that just doesn't bode well with everybody and we lose everything and we're living in a trailer down by the river. Uh, and she, and she's like, I don't think it's going to happen, but if it does happen, I'll ride with you, baby. So like, you know, I, I'm fine with it. I, Cause I, I'd rather have my consciousness and know that, I, that I believe I'm, I'm on the side of God than, than cower in the shadows trying to blend in with evil, you know? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And you have to stop caring about all the, material things in the world and you have to stop tolerating evil you have to speak out against it and um yeah work on your soul that's our chance as human beings to save humanity is the power that's in our own soul that's why i'm alive right now is 
is uh, I kept my soul. Mm. I've lost everything. I have the money that's in my wallet. I mean, that's the extent of, of what I have, but I have my soul. And so by having your soul, you're at peace and you have peace as well. Um, let me ask you uh, some things here. So uh, you said early on in this conversation that you went to, to Moscow or to Russia for this whole thing. And, but you, you referenced something real quickly. You said, but I was, I was picked for that. And, and uh, what do you mean by that? How were you picked for it? Did, was it that God picked you for this whole thing or what? Very likely. <laughs> Although at the time I wasn't particularly a, a Christian. Um, actually, I found out later that uh, the head of the department of which is GRU, which is Russian military intelligence, knew my uncle, the one who had founded the CIA. He told me years later, he, he was, he became, I met him that first trip over there and he became um, uh, sort of a, a supporter of what we did. So he provided protection while I was working on children's issue. And, and I was not political. I was not military. I was not anything but focused on uh, improving the welfare of Russian children and then uh, preventing the, the trafficking of, of Russian women and children. And then eventually protecting children in orphanages and creating programs so that they could come out of an orphanage and not be trafficked. They could come out and go to a job and a group home and to, you know, and to have a life. So, um, but he knew my uncle. So I think that in that way, they sort of picked me and probably knew I'd been in an MK Ultra program. Never talked about it because uh, I didn't, I didn't realize it. I also didn't realize that um, I am a large percentage Russian mm. <laughs> and uh, found that out later. So had this whole, uh, experience or is it ongoing with with Russia itself that were you able to see a large transformation in the country with the human trafficking once you guys started fighting it and you were getting funding and all that well I did yes and and not just trafficking but in in uh, um, child care maternal infant health care uh, the birthing practices encouraging families rather than uh, they would actually pay women to get abortions so um, doctors made money off of abortion. It just it's the same sickness that's here now. Doctors are making we're making money by uh, killing children. It was what they did, which I thought was absolutely abhorrent and and helped fight against. And now it's illegal. So um, then I come back here, and it's like it it just moved. Um, so. Uh, Again, it's it's a question of the of the moral compass. I'm sorry, I forgot your. No, question. no, it's fine. I, I, I asked you, did you see? Did you happen to see a positive transformation in Russia from your efforts with the Angel Coalition? Oh yes, yes, a very positive. Although globally, um, with the advent of the internet, human trafficking just got worse and worse and worse. It it got too easy, and. Um, and I'd been holding up the United States as like this paragon of, of virtue. I mean, I would, I, I went to like over 
50 villages and, and did lectures on, on uh, the correct way <laughs> of, of uh, preventing human trafficking. And my examples were United Nations and the United States. But as that has crumbled, it's, it's, um, they've lost, we've lost our luster. Let's say that with the Russians. And in the, in the course of this terrible Ukrainian uh, military action, which is a disaster for everyone, and will have long-term implications for us because Russia is now has the most powerful army in the world, the best armed, and has gone from absolutely loving the United States to hating us. I mean, it, the pressure from the population to just destroy us is gotten to the point where I can't talk to my Russian friends, even Russian friends who I've had here, you know, no people here are, are in favor of obliterating us. And, um, it's, it's, uh, the Russian army is now so well honed and so, um, united and so well-trained and they have infinite capacity for producing weapons and ammunition and they, they have it. Plus they now have China helping them. So uh, what's to stop that army from just going right through Poland and into, and into Europe? There's a lot of pressure from inside Russia, from the population to do just that. And you've got Putin is in power now and he's very moderate it's a it's a group who doesn't want war it's a group that uh i mean they they had to invade eastern ukraine to protect the russian population in the breakaway republics who'd already voted who had actually voted to be part of russia but were stuck in ukraine by um, an administration administrative decision by uh yeltsin who was ukrainian um so this this juggernaut is is plus a, a large there's 40,000 um death row except they don't have the death penalty anymore but capital crime um <clears throat> lifers who were recruited into the Russian army under this Wagner private military group 40,000 of the worst killers these are serial killers uh, i mean these are all murderers but they signed an agreement with the Wagner group that if, if they survive the war, they're going to get all kinds of, of rewards. And, um, of course, the Russian people do not want these people back in their society. And they've been armed, trained with arms. Um, they're vicious fighters. They have nothing to lose. And what's to stop them? 40,000 to just keep, keep on going. It's going to be a mess, and and the sooner it stops, the better for us. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I'm very, I'm very much uh, mind my own business, stay within my borders, and leave people alone kind of guy. Uh, so I, I wish we should be. I doing wish everybody that. was doing that. Uh, let me let me uh, redirect again here. I, I wanted to ask you about because uh, you mentioned about the American embassy opposing it at first. Uh, and then just kind of sparked in my head because I, I think you said, I think I, I read maybe this, but I don't think, you, I don't know if you said it or not, but it, it was like 1990, you went to Russia, right? Initially for all this. Uh, 
I don't know what the timeline yes. looks like from there to getting deeply involved with fighting this stuff. But uh, is there an Epstein connection that you know of when it comes to uh, maybe the embassy opposing it or or anything like that? Like, like obviously Epstein, you know, happened like like he supposedly killed himself. Uh, a few years back, but he's been operating for quite some time. And I believe since the 80s, he's been kind of involved in this stuff. So have you ever kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to say cross paths, but have you ever had any like, huh, I'm pretty sure Epstein was connected with this case that I was working on? Well, in the 1980s, Epstein offered me a job. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this would be in like 1987, 88. I was at a book party up in uh, San Juan Islands. I was invited by a, a friend of mine who's quite a famous author to this book party. So we were up in this in this gorgeous house overlooking the islands, all glass, absolutely beautiful. And all these planes started flying. It was just her, me, and the guy that owned the house. And um, I, I'd expected a party. But instead, all these M, uh, not Caltra, Iran Contra guys who were all over Seattle were flying in and landing their seaplanes in his little bay that he had, and they were coming and having a party. <laughs> and I, um, Jeffrey Epstein and his brother Mark were there, and uh, they were talking to me. Mostly Mark was talking to me about um, they were going to buy an island in the Caribbean and they were going to make it a, a high class resort for world leaders. And uh, what they were asking me, because I was a radiologist and, and doing a lot of papers at a medical technical development company, is it possible to hide um, data? This is right when analog was going digital. So it was sort of cutting edge technology there. Um, was it possible to hide messages in medical data? So would it be easy to, you know, take a bunch of blips and hide all kinds of information there? I said, yeah, certainly it would be. So then they, they offered me the house that we were meeting in, and uh, but I'd have to live there. And uh, so this conversation continued on for, for a few days, and then I decided I wanted nothing to do with it. And, uh, but yeah, that happened. But that's it. That's the only time I've met him. I mean, yeah, I've never met anybody who met Epstein. So you know, it's not like, you, you know, it's not like there's a whole lot of people out there that can say that. Uh, but well, he did, he did hire doctors and he hired scientists and, um, to, to like be in his centers of, of, well, uh, yeah, whatever the hell he was doing. Sure, I mean, like, I mean, we know that Epstein and Gates uh, were connected, and I know you kind of ran in those circles in the early days as well. So, I mean, you were there in those the, the rotation of that yeah. crowd. Uh, it, yes. it, but if you were to ex have accepted that, obviously, probably not knowing the full extent of what is going to happen and get be involved in. Um, it, it sounds like they were pretty much recruiting you to do nefarious things as a doctor for them. Is that the vibe that you yes. got when you were talking with them? Yeah, and I had serious reservations about putting secret data about world leaders in uh, inside reports. You know, it, mm. it, uh, they clearly knew it was illegal, and I knew it was illegal, and I had no interest in it. 
I, I, I talked to them for a while. In retrospect, they probably knew I was from an MK Ultra program and uh, that they could, you know, that I was vulnerable because I still hadn't figured it out yet. But no, I, did, I didn't want to do it. And it would have meant moving up there and it would have meant complications with my family. And no, I didn't. I didn't take it. I didn't do it. This is really interesting. So, and, and it's, it's such an obvious connection, but it's just something that I find really interesting in this moment. Uh, and I'm sure they do this often. They, they probably at some point recruit people who've been through the programming to yeah. to head up and, and lead things just like the politicians and why not have not just politicians not just uh, somebody who is you know like a, a Glenn Maxwell but also doctors lawyers people who in every facet of civilization is there to serve their purposes they 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 put a lot of money into training you for these purposes yeah wow and i also think uh, in retrospect that the russians knew because of my uncle who was the one who had put me in the program that i i was a graduate of the program and they wondered if they could use me so um uh are we ever truly free <laughs> i think we are yeah. we keep our soul and uh uh you know listen for the holy spirit which i got to see grow in russia i mean that was the that was the most powerful experience I had there out of many many powerful experiences, but um, they went from being an atheist nation. I'm talking about Russia, which is but it's true of all the former republics. They had been forbidden to even speak about God. I mean, you couldn't talk about it anything. They talked about your soul. That was okay. So everybody was talking about the status of their soul, inquiring about your soul. And that's the way people talked about religion. But as soon as the Russian constitution was signed and the religion and uh, spirituality were no longer illegal, the entire country began to transform. And uh, the first sign of that was uh, um, bells started appearing everywhere. Beautiful, huge old bells were like rising up out of the ground. And it's because the people had buried the bells when the KGB was going around destroying the monasteries and the people took the bells, buried them, and through the generations kept track of where they were. They knew where the bells were. Wow. So they just started rising up. and. I was working at a hospital in southern Moscow, in Novo Gyevo, and in front of the, in the middle of the hospital parking lot, uh, one day they're out there digging, 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 and pretty soon this bell comes up, and it's this beautiful, like four foot high, gorgeous bell with with Church Slavonic writing on it, and uh, it had been buried. It was it was the Galitsyn Bell, and uh, it was part of an old church that wasn't there anymore that that had been buried all those years ago so within as soon as they could get the bells up on any kind of a structure they started ringing and in the bells there's frequencies that are very spiritual and uh, extremely nourishing to the soul and you hear the deep bonging bells and then you hear the little tinkling bells which are the holy spirit and uh, you know what i really miss them i 
so so I recently decided that I'm going to start collecting. I'm not much of a collector. I've never been much of a collector. Uh, but recently, because I, I do enjoy uh, the idea of treasure hunting, uh, histor- history, okay. uh, <laughs> landmarks, things like that, I... I'm going to, I want to find one of these bells that was buried and then brought out of ground. I would like to see if I can get my hands on one of those to collect because I think that story is so fascinating and it's so deep on a spiritual level. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to look into that. I've never heard this before. This is fascinating. Well, there have to be a lot of lost bells because uh, not every family was able to survive and, mm-hmm. and keep track of where they were. So if, if you go to a site where there had been a church and do some, ground penetrating radar you'll probably start finding all kinds of things i'll check ebay first (laughs) 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 i'll go to corellia and we'll start digging yeah you'll find them wow wow but they're they're amazing yeah well i i uh i have i have a couple friends who are treasure hunters uh my friend christian does it down in texas um and then there's this other podcast, uh, Appalachian Intelligence Guys. They um, they they're actively doing a treasure hunt right now, and it, it's just something that I've always been fascinated by the whole idea of treasure hunting. And there's a couple sites that I'm personally working on right now. Uh, unfortunately, one's on private property, and I gotta get the permission of the owner to even do excavation. And the other one is on highly secured government property, which I don't think is an accident. Uh, so <laughs> the the government knows what's there. Sometime we need to have a conversation about star forts. Talk to me. Dig for treasure. Talk to me now. Star forts. Talk to me now. Well, star forts are um, huge structures, obviously built by civilizations much more technically advanced than ours. And at least two floods ago, because when you start start uh, looking at them and, and, and excavating. Barely any excavation has been done, but uh, start looking at them. There's there's at least a couple of mud floods that have buried these things, so it's it's older than the flood. Um, they're all over the world. They're everywhere in the United States. Um, where I'm living now is right in the middle of one. Um, wow. Uh, the Pentagon is is built on top of one. Statue of the Liberty is built on top of one. Most military bases are built in the middle of them. That's where they got the name forts. It's nothing to do with forts. Nobody knows what they actually are. They, um, St. Louis, Chicago, uh, New York, um, Brooklyn are all built on top of uh, the star forts. So they had water that, that came out of them that seemed to be generated by the rocks. So the rocks of the star fort generate water. Every... Every site in the Bible that's named where the tribes of Israel migrated to is a star fort. They're, because they're raised, they're up to 300 feet off the ground. And uh, nobody could really, really knew what these things were until drones and Google Earth. But, um, and, and they exist on old maps. So you get a map from the 1500s of the United States when uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and John White were, were mapping out the, the new world and the, and the colonies, it's got star forts on the maps. They later covered them up because of this, um, some kind of edict. I don't know, I'm researching this, but wow. uh, there was an edict of discovery by the 
by the Vatican saying that if there was no advanced civilization on a piece of land, you could take it. So they had to cover these up because obviously they, <laughs> they were evidence of advanced yeah. civilization and they wanted the land, but they're still there. So, um, so we're talking about like ancient technology kind of stuff. Uh, I feel like I, I, I've had way beyond. I, I, yeah, I feel like I, I, I heard this mentioned before. Now that you're talking about it, uh, it, it, you said you're researching it. We, we should have you back on to talk to, for for a focus on this sometime if you if you be up for something like that because um, Star Forts, man. I, like I think I think uh, I, <laughs> you're just giving me another rabbit hole to start looking down into. It's. It's it's a key to something absolutely major, and and when you start seeing them, you can't stop seeing them. Mm. Uh, they're absolutely everywhere. They're all over the United States. They're all over Russia, all over Asia. Um, they're everywhere in the world, and they are these distinct shapes. Uh, they look like they were almost created by sound frequencies. And uh, someone in California had a, or maybe Washington State had a pendulum during an earthquake. And the vibrations of the earthquake actually drew a star fort from the pendulum. Wow. It drew this multi-leaved thing and then an, like, something that looked like the Eye of Horus. So all these things don't come from nowhere. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, it's so funny. We're you, you just said something that's the star shape is what you... We're talking about star forts. I'm not even thinking about shapes here. So the idea... So there's a, there's a fort. In Philadelphia, it's called Fort Mifflin, yeah. and it is it's in the shape of a star. And uh, I, I, I've because I, I, I've done I've done digging in because I've talked to the fort about doing excavation there, and they laughed at me essentially when I told them I, I was just a, a local treasure hunter. They're like, "Then absolutely not. You are not coming here. To stay away." But um, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I've never really even thought about that. Well, the military puts forts. In, in the middle of all these of all these structures they're getting some kind of energy or or water also Google data centers are in the middle of these things the one in st. Louis is uh, huge it's absolutely huge and and uh, I'll, I'll send you some links so you can start looking please but um, when the settlers came there was an enormous water tower in st. Louis before there was anything else with a Corinthian looking column on top this enormous thing. And it was the source of water for the city. I think it's still there, but it, they've, they've uh, remodeled it or something. But it's at the head of an enormous star fort, which then connects to the Manhattan Project in the east and continues to the north and, and um, connects to Cahokia, which are the, are the, they're supposed to be Native American mounds but they're actually one of the points of a star fort probably have much, much older, um, including, you know, they found giants there, uh, which then were taken away. But, um, you know what I find? So I find interesting. We don't know nothing. No, no. We don't know anything. <laughs> uh, what, what I find interesting about you is, and I was just sitting here listening to you talk and it just kind of clicked in my brain. Like you're one of the rare people that uh, serves a bridge between this, crazy stuff that people talk about like me to this other side of of the of people where it's like the respected you know educated people 
uh, you know, I, I'm a former trucker that's now a podcaster. I don't hold a degree. Uh, but but you you you're not just a, a a medical doctor. You you were a highly respected medical doctor. I mean, top of your class, all that. I mean, and the fact that you're sitting here talking about this stuff, and you were first on the show talking about your personal experience in MK Ultra, like you're like this unique bridge between these two different realities that we don't normally get with people. And I find it fascinating that you, that that one you you look into this stuff, you're willing to talk about it, but the, also you have the 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 backing of your medical degree, and 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 for people like me, like I I don't really, I, I don't really care about degrees, but like the the fact is, there's a lot of people out there that that I think will give you much more credence than maybe another guest saying the exact same thing, just because you do have a medical degree and your history with that. I just I find it really fascinating. I do I just do, and that just random com- comment there, but there you go. <laughs> An interesting guest for you would be to talk to Michael Janich. He's got the site Dutch Sense, and uh, he's the one that is is putting pulling together. Um, he's been studying radar since he was like five, and his father worked for McDonnell Douglas and Boeing. and And uh, he does now. He does a worldwide earthquake um, uh, prediction report and forecast, and is incredibly accurate and. Uh, if you follow his channel, he's proved that the Earth does not have a solid core just by studying earthquakes. And uh, he's also, because he spent so much time on Google Earth, has been documenting these star forts. And uh, he, he said that Antarctica is a giant star fort and um, that the antipode to Antarctica is the focus of most of the deep earthquakes in the world. So um, he'd be a fascinating fascinating guest to get on. And he always says the same thing. He says, I'm just a carpenter. You know, I don't have a formal education. And yet he's the most brilliant mind that uh, I've ever listened to. His his powers of observation and then uh, courage because uh, he's always being tracked, followed. He discovered a, a star fort um, in New York City. Apparently it's a big housing project was built on top of it actually by the Rockefellers. And um, within a week of him reporting on it, the park that was there was set on fire. So it was burned and destroyed. And another one uh, where he discovered a, another star fort connected to the St. Louis complex of star forts called uh, Fort Belfair or Bell, Bell River, whatever that was in French. But, um, and the park service has now closed the park and is digging it up. <laughs> So he's on to something. <laughs> the par- the park service that's armed probably. Oh, yeah. So he's uh he'd be a he'd be a great, wonderful guest. Yeah, I I, I think I'm gonna be looking him up too and uh, get him on, which reminds me, uh when I interviewed you and put put out that first episode, I uh, I did an interview with Dr. Sanger uh, a while back and she heard the interview with you. And she said she'd be very interested in talking with you. So I think I'd like to have you and her on some time together uh, because she talks about sure. a lot of different things. And uh, I think you two would get along very well. This is like, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not, uh, I'm not posing uh, somebody that would be, uh, this isn't like a debate. This, this is somebody who I think would have a great conversation with you uh, because she talks with a lot of people as well in, in the, the realm of uh, what you do and things like that. So 
I just think it'd be really cool. Dr. Sanger and you coming on together and talking would be a really fun episode, uh, I think. And as long as I think that, then that's what happens because I'm in control of everything here. So (laughs) 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 that's how I operate, you know? Sure. Um, Sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm looking back at my notes here as, as to things that I, I, I jotted down here. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to ask you, and this is more along the lines of MKUltra, uh, but this, I think this was a question that came up a couple of times, and maybe it's because I didn't ask the proper question to get you know, the response out of you. Um, but you did reference the idea a couple times now at 17, escaping MK Ultra, and I think you meant. I think you even said like off the university, and you had help. I think in the, and I, I may not might be misremembering, but uh, I think in the first interview, I, I I think I didn't do a good job on asking you how did you escape MK Ultra programming at 17, if you even remember some how did, how that happened. Sure, um, I was. Um... At that point, as a teenager, I was being used as like, they called us party favors, and they part of a group that they called the freaks. And uh, we were skinny, sexy girls with, my hair was longer than my skirt, and my skirt was very short. And we were kept for um, record executive parties. That was my, my thing. So... They had be big parties in Laurel Canyon and uh, different canyons. There's like seven of them around Los Angeles. And uh, we burst into the parties and hand out LSD and dance and, and get everybody high and then get them in compromising positions so they could be photographed and blackmailed. So um, uh, I was at Esalen. It's now called Esalen, but back then it was called... Um, Murphy Hot Springs outside of Monterey. And they had a compound there and they were bringing in record executives and we were, we were prisoners there. There was um, barbed wire all around. There were, there was no power at that time. So everything was, was dark and, and we were in the middle of a cornfield. There was a hot spring there somewhere, but we weren't able to use it. And uh, they flew in record execs to preview bands. So they always had us girls in the back with tambourines and things dancing around. And then uh, uh, it was just a few weeks before university was supposed to start. And I, I was 17 and I hadn't finished high school, but my high school teachers who knew there was something terribly wrong in my life um, helped me. They, they, uh, helped me apply to the University of Washington. And uh, we were living in California at the time. And um, so they helped me apply, helped me um, with letters and support as, you know, really getting behind me as a, as a bright kid. And then uh, I forged all my parents' signatures <laughs> on all the documents and forms and all that. I could still forge their signatures. And um, I didn't know how I was going to get out of Murphy Hot Springs. But um, during one of the breaks when everybody was all drunk and high, uh, a red triumph drove through the gate. We had a clicker and it was my handler whose name was Chip. And he would go out to Monterey and sell blotters of LSD made a lot of money basically selling drugs from his car. And sometimes he took me and I drove, you know, so he had a sexy chick with lots of hair. 
driving the car while he sold the blotters of LSD. So I knew how to drive the car. And um, he drove in, passed out, left the gate open. And um, I, he was in the driver's seat and I was, he was a big guy. And, and so I thought, this is my chance. I'll steal the car. I couldn't get him out because he was too big. Did push him over on the other side, so he was sort of half down on the floor. I got into the car, used the clicker to reopen the gate, and took off. I didn't have any shoes, any money, any purse, any anything, but I was getting out of there. And uh, this is this is where the Lord came in big time, because uh, I got to the point where I was out of gas. I still had this guy in the car, passed out. Uh, was freezing cold had you know just a skimpy little skirt on and no shoes and didn't know what the heck I was going to do so I, I was going to go into this truck stop and pick up we call them daddies get a daddy to buy me a meal and and uh it's like the Lord said no no you're not going to do that anymore and so I started looking around the car and I opened the glove box and there was this roll of cash. He had this huge roll of 20s from all the blotters of LSD he'd been selling. So I had his money. And then I found that the car was absolutely full of green stamps. I don't know if you're old enough to have heard of green stamps. Yeah, it's not ringing a bell. You used to get them with gas or, or different things that you'd buy when you collected enough. You took it into a, a green stamp distribution center and got pretty much anything you wanted. So I bought gas, bought food, um, eventually got him out of the car with a nasty confrontation, but drove north and then took a, got on a bus and took the bus to Seattle. And with the drug money and the green stamps, took my place at the University of Washington and showed up the first day looking like every other little co-ed with my tidy skirt and knee socks and pink sweater and neat hair, so this wild head of hair, and um, started studying and left it all behind. Just left it. I mean, just never thought about it. And the past was gone. And it was college, so, you know, nobody cared where you came from or what you did in high school. It was over. For me, it was really over. So that's how I escaped in a red sports car. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't exactly the story I thought I was going to get actually, <laughs> but I thought, yeah. it was, I thought it was going to be more simple. But, uh, uh, with that though, um, you, when you were in MK ultra, uh, before you escaped, you were still living at a home with your parents. Uh, you, you forged their signatures, things like that. Did they just not ever come looking for you? I mean, it shouldn't have been too hard to find you. Right. Well, they did. And, and, uh, we interacted less and less over the years. And then when I started to remember, I went to them and, and wanted to know what the hell had gone on. And my mother, I never saw her again and until just before she died. And my father started saying, you know, what do you want to know? And then he would tell me something. And I said, I don't believe that. And he'd go, well, how about this? And he'd come up with something else. And, it, and uh, finally I said, I'm, I'm going to see a psychiatrist. And if I don't see a psychiatrist, I'm going to kill myself. Because either I'm, if I'm crazy, I am not going to inflict this 
on my children. And I was absolutely convinced they were better off without me if I was going to be like what I was remembering was my parents. And my father said, well, if you see a psychiatrist, you'll never see us again. And I said, if I don't see a psychiatrist, I'm going to kill myself. And he goes, well, that's your choice. And that's the last thing he said to me. So um, I didn't see him again for 20 years. And I never saw my mother again, except just before she died, she called me. But they made a point of letting me know that they'd gone to Mexico. So um, they'd left the country. What, what was that phone call like talking to your mom? Has she, did she ever say, you know, you were right, this is what happened or anything like that? No. And my father didn't either. And I, I did ask him several times when he was in his, his 90s. And he always pretended like he didn't remember anything. Uh, he just, he was terrified. He was afraid of, of I don't know, because he never told me. And the same thing was true that my uncle, he would never tell my cousins anything. In fact, I had all these cousins that are about my age, but we never met each other. We didn't know each other existed until uh, I started doing ancestry. And then suddenly I turn up with all these cousins <laughs> who are also looking for, for other people. But the families were all involved in this. That's incredible. That's crazy. It's, it's terrible. It's a crazy life that you you've lived. It really is, and I I really think that you know, as bad as the things you went through were, uh, you're using those situations for a better purpose now. You know, uh, and sharing so. sharing your story, raising awareness to from MK Ultra realities to human trafficking realities and how intimately involved us as Americans are when it comes to human trafficking, we don't even realize it because the systems that, that, that are in place that takes, take our tax money fund these kind of things. And so uh, I think you raising awareness and, and speaking out and, and you've been doing it for a long time um, has really, it, it's really, I, I, think, I think you found such a great purpose in life um, that I, I just, I applaud you for, for doing so and, uh, having the guts to come out and talk about this stuff and not worrying about reputations and stuff. I mean, obviously you threw that, that worry away a long time ago. Uh, and, and I think it's, I think it's really cool that you're, that you're doing what you do. Well, I think it's really cool. You're doing what you do. <laughs> <laughs> you really get it out there and you obviously have very devoted followers who are, are, uh, sort of leading the leading the edge on on waking up. Yeah. So, impressive group, really. Well, uh on that note, I'm going to wind things down. Uh I think that the followers uh are awesome and uh they will take this information and they're they're going to dig and they're going to share and they're going to uh raise awareness just through their own channels. Um people People have so much more influence than what they realize. You know, I mean, I, I'm the guy with a microphone and I have a large reach up front at first, but uh, everybody listening has a bigger reach than me because collectively you guys have access to millions of people. And so it's really, it, it's just the domino effect. And the more people listen, the more people start digging and, and prove to themselves in belief. Because I think that's a big thing. You can sit and listen to something and say, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. But if you can prove to yourself 
that this is true and I believe this is true. Uh, at that point, you really don't have much of an option uh, than to be active in some way, whether it's uh, talking to your spouse or your 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 parents about it and raising awareness that way to taking it to your own podcast if you're listening and you have a podcast or a YouTube channel. Um, I, I think it's a very important and I think uh, as much as they have tried to brush over the Epstein situation that happened in 20, what, 19, I think it was in August, 2019, uh, when he died, um, as much as they tried brushing that over and carry on business as usual is as much, we need to apply pressure and say no more, no more child trafficking, no more human trafficking, no more MK ultra, no more child abuse. It's done. It's that's it. And, uh, and, and, and really, like I said earlier, and I do mean it, um, knowing how to uh, approach things appropriately when the time comes. Um, mm-hmm. We're living in a society of people who have been manipulated to uh, be perceived as gutless. I think there's a lot of people out there that are brave, uh, but they don't know how to be brave because they've been, been, been manipulated enough uh, through mainstream propaganda to not know which way is up. And I think that uh, if we can find our, our compass morally, uh, we can truly uh, start to really uh, make a difference in this world and hopefully in the nick of time because things are getting crazy bad. And if you're, if you're somebody like me, and I'm, I'm talking to basically the audience because I know you're a Christian, uh, but like, if you're somebody like me that is fearing the divine power of God, um, I think we need to get our ducks in a row quickly because uh, his wrath is being held back by a threat at this point. And, uh, and well, I think we need to prepare for that as well. So that's my closing exactly. statement. Oh. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, we don't want to experience the wrath of God. No, we want to get our, our act together. He's giving us a chance because the wrath of God is a terrible thing. Exactly. It's not going to come down and wrap you in cotton wool. We're going to be dry bones. Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please share the show with your friends. I don't care where or how you share the show. Just share the show if you enjoyed it because that's the best thing you could do to help the show grow. Share the show. And until next week, friends, stay safe, take care, and remember, the truth will set you free. But first, it'll piss you off. Bye. I'm just a note according to them. Trapped in encryption, just trying to ascend. Blending with bots, it's hard to pretend. Swimming against the current of trends. See if
filling a blank that keep piling Operation full of my tank, I'm still smiling I am. I'm not sure if what I believe is anything that you can tie down As my thoughts obscure what was truth deceives All that's left is me